Uh, open your Bibles with me, if you would, while well, kids are going out, to the book of Romans, chapter 13. And then hold your place there and turn back a page to chapter 12. We'll get into that in a few minutes. Got to, I want to do a bit of a somewhat lengthy review because it's really important as we get into this last part of Romans 13, that we understand the context and that we understand where the Apostle Paul is going with this critical instruction for the church, for the church at Rome, yes, also for the church of Jesus Christ today. So as we continue in chapter 13, it's important to remember where we've come from, uh, also where we're headed as we study this book. So in the first 11 chapters in Paul's letter to the church at Rome, uh, the apostle has given great instruction. He's given a lot of instruction, doctrinal understanding as to just what the transactions are which occur, occur when Someone repents of sin and gives their life to Christ. We've looked at, beginning in this book, at the utter depravity of man. And yes, that includes me and it includes you. Utterly depraved. We've also looked at God's work through the cross of justifying the sinner. That he imputes righteousness to us. That he gives us His righteousness, the righteousness of God, freely placed on my life. We also spent some time looking at the doctrine of sanctification, if you would, which is righteousness imparted. Uh, The two sides of it. First, having been sanctified, which is to be declared spotless and holy at a moment in time. The moment of my salvation. The moment of regeneration, when life is imparted, given. We've also looked at the process of being sanctified, which is worked out in our lives every single day. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14, we read this. He says, for by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Both sides. What the writer is saying here in Hebrews is both. He's saying that by Jesus' life being offered... You and I have been perfected forever. Positionally, God sees us as sinless and holy, justified and sanctified. Added to that, he says we are being sanctified. Uh, So the writer, under the inspiration of the Spirit in putting this down, is covering both. By one offering, he's perfected forever, those who are being sanctified. So the positional and the practical. In looking at the ministry of the Holy Spirit, as we've moved along in the book of Romans, we spent weeks in chapter 8, the ministry of the Spirit, and we've come to the understanding that he's the one that performs the sanctifying work within us. It's not self-help, gang. We've talked about that. Not going to belabor it again, but it, it is truly a work of God. So what's my part? To yield. To simply be a yielded vessel through which he can work. So with that in mind, I want to look at at once more at at chapter 12, at the first two verses. So 
Uh, read with me here, Romans 12, 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Verse 2, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is a good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So he says it's not about conformity. That's easy. It's about being transformed. That's a different thing. That's that part where I yield, where I say, Lord, take me. (laughs) I'm yours. So when he talks about the mercies of God, uh, that's everything that we've studied in this book, in this letter, up until we get into chapter 12, where he shifts. Paul, the apostle, pivots at that point and goes from giving us doctrine to giving us practical application. So how does that transforming work come about? Through the renewing of my mind. How does that come about? By the Holy Spirit working within. How does that come about? By my yielding willfully to his sanctifying work. So as Paul began Romans 12 by exhorting us to live this different kind of life, we've talked about that all through Romans. We are called to live a different kind of life. That life that he describes in the first 11 chapters, verse 2, he tells us how it's done. So we need to understand that in being transformed by the renewing of our minds, it's not something that happens purely internally. It happens as we understand our own depravity, as we understand the transactions of being justified and sanctified. It happens as we understand this work only happens through the agency of the Holy Spirit, who is now living within. Again, this is critical in understanding the Christian life. Beginning with Romans 12, the apostle outlines the practical work of applying these truths to everyday people and everyday life. And now, I want to note something too. I don't believe it's a mistake that his first stop is all about serving God within the body of Christ. Because right from that particular passage at the opening of Romans 12, he goes into talking about spiritual gifts that are used for the building up of the body of Christ. And the point in that is if we're going to have any effect on the world that's all around us, we need to be built up here talk about not forsaking the assemblings of ourselves together uh, later on here in the message. But that's why he goes directly into talking about spiritual giftedness within the body of Christ. So the next thing he goes into is the radical shift in behavior that comes about in our lives. In verse 9, he says, let love be without hypocrisy. You know what hypocrisy is? It's believing one thing or or actually laying it out there that I believe one thing and then I'm behaving in another way. It's where there's a dissonance in my life. There's There's a disconnect. And we Americans are really good at compartmentalizing. And the admonition here is that can lead to hypocrisy. Now, I want to talk about hypocrisy this morning. I want you to understand going in, I am not talking about the the areas of hypocrisy that God is working in our lives on as he cleans us up, as he sanctifies us. That's why we started with looking at sanctification. Yes, all of us have areas. That's why I caution you guys, I warn you guys, don't think you know what God's will is for the person sitting next to you. 
Very, very dangerous. <laughs> I know. I'm married. Um, oh, I got to look. <laughs> We're going to have a talk on the way home from church today. But the point is, we cannot presume to know what God's will is for another. And God is in the business of sanctifying us. And so, yes, do all of us have areas of hypocrisy? Yes, we do. There are areas where we behave one way, we believe another, and God says, well, let me put my hand on that. His conviction comes. I yield. Like I said, that's our job. That's our part. And he does the work. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the person who says, you know, I'm a Christian. And it's okay for me to behave doing X. And we'll talk about that. Because that's what Paul talks about here in this chapter. He gives a series of contrasts. So, if we think about it, you and I have lived the life that we've lived up until this time, up until the time that we gave our lives to Christ, up until the time of our conversion. And, and there are habits and there are ways and there are thought patterns and there is, it's, a, it's a life. And then what happened, what happened with me, and I'm going back to 1983, when I went to a church one morning and, and God got a hold of my life, and I don't mean a little bit, and I was changed. All of a sudden, the old ways just didn't fit. All of a sudden, I just, I, I, I would think about what was coming out of my mouth and I would be convicted and, and I just, uh, I had this hunger for God that I'd never experienced before. That's part of the work of his spirit. And that's part of the work of sanctifying us. And that's part of this entirely new dynamic that has come in. And that's life in the spirit. Life as a living sacrifice. That's what he's talking about when he talks about that in Romans 12 too. It's a life that's dependent upon God. It's dependent on his gifts. Not mine. Not my talents. Not things I'm good at. It's totally dependent upon him. And... That old nature, that old life, still wants to express itself. And we quickly learn that what the Bible refers to is what it is to be double-minded. And then we learn that it doesn't work. I want to live one way. I want to live out those old patterns, those old habits, those old things, those thought patterns in my life. And yet the Holy Spirit is here saying, no, let me show you a better way. Hypocrisy comes when I'm willfully trying to live the old way and the new way simultaneously. That's the, that's the product. That's what it produces. A hypocritical way of living. So, therefore, the latter half of chapter 12, <clears throat> in, in that Paul goes into great detail as to what this new life looks like. The old behaviors are replaced by new ones. Old ways of doing things are replaced by new ways of doing things. We also learned that simply identifying the old ways in our lives doesn't go far enough. It's all about applying God's word and allowing the Holy Spirit to have reign in my heart and in my actions. So continuing on with Paul's admonition to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, we see a progression. First, we build one another up in utilizing our gifts in the body of Christ. 
Next, as the Spirit identifies areas of the old life which are in direct conflict with the new, we choose, underline that word, it's an act of the will, not to live hypocritically. Rather, we choose to cooperate with the Spirit's work as we walk in love towards those around us. In verse 16 of chapter 12, Paul tells us to be of the same mind towards one another. In other words, part of being of the same mind is the realization that we together are being changed by the renewing of our minds. We're all in this boat together, gang. It is a a mutual thing that we share. That's why it is so important to walk in grace because God is changing you at a different pace and in different ways than he's changing me. And that's a good thing because there's, there's conformity in universal in, in the fact that we're different, we conform to what the Lord has for us, and yet there's diversity. We've talked about that. It's critically important to understand that God is doing this work in us individually. That's my point. And what that looks like may very well be different in what he's doing in my life and what he's doing in yours. And why? Because we're all in process. We're all a work in process. We are his workmanship. We're told in Ephesians 2, his poema, his creative work. And he's doing that work as we walk along and as he knows best what's good for us. So Paul goes on to give a series of contrasts in chapter 12 between the old way of thinking and the new. He says, bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them. Uh, so bless, don't curse. Don't, he says, don't set your mind on high things. Set your mind on humble things. Don't be wise in your own opinion. Don't repay evil for evil. Don't overcome evil, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So he's setting up this thing. As as I mentioned, there is such a shift in, in chapter 12. And as we go into chapter 13, we've got to keep this in mind. That's why I'm spending as much time laying this out for you this morning as I am. We've got to understand these are not fragmented portions of scripture that we pick and choose. It has to be in the greater context of what's going on with the text. So he gives these contrasts to illustrate what godly living in the absence of hypocrisy look like as we apply them and what James, Jesus' brother, wrote about in his epistle as to what double-mindedness looks like when we don't. (laughs) Because... It's easy to be that guy that he talks about in James, to be the guy that I, I, I read God's word, I'm convicted about something, I, or I, I'm at church and something is said and the Holy Spirit convicts me and I, I see myself clearly and I think, Lord, I want to yield that to you and then I turn around or I leave or, or get busy with the dishes or whatever and it's gone. This is like a guy that looks in the mirror and he turns around and it's gone. No longer sees that reflection of who he is And he's back to doing the old ways. It's in this context that last week I spoke about the fact that we have dual citizenship. And why it is that we are citizens of heaven first, citizens of the state second. And in that, we are not being hypocritical in those instances where we disobey Caesar to honor God. Very clear. From God's word, there are those times. And I urge caution because that can't be a covering for sin. I mentioned bookends, the bookends of love. 
as we looked at verses 1 through 7, being subject to the government in chapter 13 last week. Those bookends being love for God and love for one another as that which is our motive. That's what motivates us in the Christian life. And this is why from the outside, looking in, the world see, it, it sees believers, I mean, the unbelieving world out there sees believers as being fear-motivated rule keepers. They, Oh, you know, they are doing that because they are afraid to get out of line with God. And, and people will, I mean, they'll say that. When in reality, nothing could be further from the truth. It's a very common view, and it stems from a basic misunderstanding as to the character and the nature of God, as well as the person and the work of Jesus Christ. It's because, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, their eyes have not seen, nor have their ears heard the things that God has laid up for those who love him. Therefore, I'm not primarily motivated by fear. I'm not motivated by fear of breaking the law. I'm motivated by love. Love for God, love for others. It can look the same on the outside, but the motive of the heart is completely different. Now, where people get into trouble with this is when they allow blatant hypocrisy to exist in their lives without doing anything about it. That's not a good thing. He's essentially saying, if you don't want to be in trouble for not paying your taxes... Pay your taxes. (laughs) If you don't want to live in fear of the police breaking down your door, don't do things that will cause them to want to come and break down your door. (laughs) It's logical, simple, wise counsel from God's word. However, moralistic people live that way. So what is it that separates the Christian from the moralist? I mean, there are good people out there. There are a lot of good people. There are a lot of people that are law-abiding citizens and they live this way. They say, you know what? I don't want to be a lawbreaker. I want to be honest on my taxes. I tell my account, just get every deduction you can. But the point is, there are people that, are, that live moral lives. So what separates us from the moralist? The answer is simple, but exceedingly profound. Love. Love for God, love for others. We're going to see as we go through the text, and it has to be with this understanding that we approach verses 8 through 14 here in Romans 13. Uh, If we approach it with any other mindset, we will miss the point entirely. I also want to begin with a simple premise. (laughs) I mentioned last week, and we will get to the text, by the way. I mentioned last week that both Paul and Peter exhorted Christians to live as good citizens in a corrupt social and political environment. Things were a mess for the church in the first century. When Paul exhorted Christians, he was imprisoned by Nero himself. He was not in a good environment. When Peter said, look, pay honor to the king, he, was in, he ended up in the same prison that Paul was, a Mamertine prison, except the method in which he was executed, being crucified upside down because he counted himself not worthy to be crucified in the same manner as his Lord. That's what church history tells us. Paul being beheaded on the steps of the forum after he had been convicted of capital crimes, which were because he was a Christian. And Christianity and a totalitarian government can't coexist. 
I will leave that with you to ponder our current situation. We got to recognize that God knew what he was doing uh, when he called Christians to live as separate and to live as living sacrifices in a similar environment. I read this morning about Afghanistan, about what is happening with Christians, and it is not okay. God understands that. He knows that. He doesn't condone sin, but he also calls us to live in a godless, crazy, screwed up world. As light in the darkness. The longer I walk with the Lord, the more I realize that God's specific design for you and for me is to walk as children of light in dark places. That's why, you know, I, I don't I don't get too sideways when I hear people talking about how horrible things are out there. It's not because I don't care. It's not because I'm apathetic. It's because I understand that we live in that kind of world. And I understand that at the end of the day, Jesus is still on the throne. I understand that people are going to simply be faithful to their nature. And if you have a new nature in Christ, then it's God's will for you to be faithful to that nature. Yeah, you still can choose. That's what he's talking about here. But if you, out there in the world where there is really no moral compass, people are being faithful to their nature. We can expect no more. doesn't mean that God endorses the darkness. doesn't mean that God condones sin. He does not. It means that God knows until he comes, until Jesus comes. This world that we live in, it is dark and it is fallen. Folks, we need to accept that. Again, acceptance isn't the same as endorsement. Understand, it's the world we live in. And our interaction with it is all important because he tells us that friendship with the world is hostility. It's enmity with Christ. So there is a separateness. There is a separation. However, we live in a fallen and dark world. What are we going to do about it? And that's what Paul is talking about here. We either cave and we live hypocritically, which is very dangerous. Talk about that. Or we shine as a light in a dark place. Let's read through the verses uh, uh, 8 through 14 together, and then we'll come back, take a closer look. Uh, Romans 13, 8. Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment, are all summed up... uh, by the, in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And do this, knowing the time that now is, it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. 
Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. This is indeed a powerful passage that offers both understanding and depth as it relates to godly character, which the Lord is developing in each of his people. Verse 8, he says, Owe no one anything except love one another, for he who loves another is fulfilling the law. So while it's true that we're all called to steward that which God has entrusted to us, uh, and virtually all that we possess belongs to him, when Paul writes uh, this, he's not giving instruction that a Christian should never incur financial debt. I want to get that out of the way on the front end. Uh, that, that's a shallow interpretation And that's not what he's saying. Uh, And I could go to other passages in the word that talk about that. But it's also true. I mean, let's be realistic too, that it's not God's will for us to be buried in debt. Jesus addressed that in the parable of the sower in Luke chapter 8, other places. When he talks about worries over riches and, and the lack thereof being something that can draw us away from God. So there's balance to be had here, gang. But what Paul's saying is something completely different. And let me ask you a question. How much love has God poured into your life? How much love has he given if he has so loved you to give his only son? I can pay off my car and I know the debt is paid. If someone commits a crime, they do the time. That's what we say. You do the, commit the crime, you're going to do the time. We see that their debt to society is paid, right? These are finite amounts. It's not the case with love. Uh, With any other debt, (laughs) there's a set amount to repay. With regard to love, I can't ever say, I've done all of the loving I need to do, now I'm paid up. Sounds silly to even say, doesn't it? It's because it is. Love, then is a permanent obligation. And, and I, I said obligation. No, I'm not being legalistic. I promise. But it's a permanent obligation. It's the only debt that we have that is impossible to discharge. Why? Because love is a perpetual thing in our lives. The love of God is poured out on our lives every day. And, and the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts. I mean, I could just go to passage after passage that talk about that he works in me and that he works through me. Jesus, or Peter wanted to know, how many times do I forgive? That's an act of love, by the way. And Jesus said 70 times 7. It's infinite. So, therefore, owe no one anything except love, for he who loves another is fulfilling the law. That's why he says it. Because that debt is something that we continue to pour out. Verse 9, he says, For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, uh, shall not steal, shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. If there's any other commandment, all are summed up in the saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Interestingly, this is the first five of the Ten Commandments or this is the second five, actually. The first five deal with our relationship uh, with God vertically. It's about loving God. The sixth through the tenth commandments deal with our relationships horizontally. 
loving others. And those are the ones that Paul is quoting here. Each of these, uh, every one of them are loveless acts. They're things that are done devoid of love. Adultery, murder, stealing, bearing false witness against another, coveting property or people. Loveless. It's how the world functions. Not so with us. Each of these is a product of selfishness. And it's elevating and serving one's own lusts and desires rather than going low and serving another in love. Do you see the contrast? It's huge. Every single one of these commandments that Paul quotes is not fulfilled by fearful obedience. It's not something that I'm going, oh, I'm, you know, God's going to hit me with a two by four if I get out of line. That's not it. It's not by forced subjection. It's through love. I love the Lord. Therefore, I want to treat you well. I love the Lord. Therefore, I want to honor the king. I love him. Therefore, I want to live as a good citizen. I love him. Therefore, I don't want to live hypocritically. I love him. Therefore, and you could just continue to fill in the blanks. Because it's a base motivation of our hearts as believers. World doesn't have this. That's why so many of the things that are going on out there are stark and rigid and unforgiving. It's my willful, voluntary response to the love that God has freely poured out on my life. Period. It's a response. It's not a means towards. It's a response to. Got to get that straight. Because when it's a means towards, that's religion. That's fear. When it's a response to, it's saying, I understand the character and nature of God. I understand the person and the work of Jesus. I don't understand all of it, not by a long shot, but I understand enough to know that he loves me. He loved me enough to die for me. And now with the Holy Spirit dwelling within, he loves me enough to not let me get away with it when it comes to some of those things, but he loves me enough to motivate me to a life of love because the fruit of his spirit is what? Love. Manifests as joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. But it's love. Every single one of the commandments that Paul quotes is not fulfilled Again, by fearful obedience. It's a willful, voluntary response to the love that God has freely poured out on my life. That's it. Verse 10, he says, Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore it is the fulfillment of the law. So the love that he's talking about here, gang, it's not something we fall into. Okay? (laughs) I fell into love with my wife. It's not the same. But he's talking, and and I love, I mean, emotional love is great. You know, the, 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 the warm fuzzies, I call it. It's, but it's not, it's not this sugary thing that he's talking about here. He's talking about love as a way of life. This is agape love. Every mention of the word love here is agape love. And it's the highest form of love. It's a sacrificial, by its very nature, it's a sacrificial love. It says, I'm putting you before me. 
And as I live a life that that's consistent, guess what? I'm fulfilling the law. There's no rules when it comes to that. I, I don't need rules. Those are elementary. They are things that are left on the table. Don't, I don't, that's not, that's not the point. The point is, I've been filled with his love and now I want to give it away because I love him. It's my response to the love of God. This is, by the way, it's the last mention of the law of Moses in the book of Romans. He's talked about the law of Moses a lot along the way. But I want to submit to you that perhaps the love of Christ is a bit more stringent (laughs) because what he's saying here is to live lovingly and love responsibly. Understand that. Live lovingly and love responsibly. Real love never seeks to harm another. That's his point. Rather, it actively seeks the welfare and honor of everybody. Therefore, the one who acts in love is in reality fulfilling the requirements of the law. We are not under the law. The effect of the law of Moses was terminated at the cross. When Jesus said, it is finished, that's what he meant. It's done. He said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it, and he did. So now, by faith in Christ, the law is fulfilled in me, in him. I don't have to worry about it. Because now, the covenant... The agreement, the contract, the basis of that is no longer law. It is love. And Paul is simply reinforcing the things that came about via the work of the cross. True love, godly love, never harms another. You know, we have some friends, a pastor and his wife in California. We were having lunch with them one day. And she said something so profound that it's just stuck with me over the years. And she said, you know, whenever you put a thing in front of a person, you better look at that because there's a good chance you're getting out of God's will. When I put a thing in front of a person, it's it's time to examine that. Very often you hear of people that put things in front of their relationships with others. Maybe it's finances. Maybe it's the stress that you have on your job. Maybe it's, and again, you can fill in the blank. But when we put those things in front of living lovingly and loving responsibly, we're headed for trouble. It's true, though. I also want to give room for this. That tough love is sometimes a necessary ingredient And God's dealing with us. Hebrews chapter 12 gives great instruction and insight into the chastising hand of God. The Lord chastens every son whom he receives. He says, and if you are without chastening, you might not belong to him. So it's a good thing because as a loving parent, he does what any other responsible parent does. And he doesn't let us get get away with it. He doesn't let us strip out so much line that we're just floundering out there. There are times when someone's life is in such peril or so deeply affected by sin that we do intervene. But the motive must always be love. There are times where people's behavior causes me to want to condemn them. That's my flesh. Wouldn't I rather want to see them restored? Yeah. 
And I strongly advise in those situations, bathe them in prayer before you go taking any action because perhaps God has revealed something to you so that you can pray and watch him move countless times over the years. I'll just, I'll kick back and pray. That doesn't mean that I'm afraid to confront situations or people. Sometimes it's necessary, but most of the time I pray. I wake up praying most mornings. That's not a boast. It's just, that's just part of my prayer life. And when I pray and I watch God move, it's amazing how many times the phone is rang or somebody will report something or whatever, and I'll just smile. I didn't have to get in there and muck all of it up to see him move. And again, there are times where that's not the case. And there are times where if somebody's in peril, we have to step in. Verse 11, he says, and do this knowing the time that now it is high time uh, to wake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. I, I want to look at the original language here. He says, now is knowing the time in this, that is not the word chronos. That's where we get time, chronograph. <laughs> this is the word kairos, kairos. So Imagine with me, it's just, okay, you're, you're laying in bed and, and, and you're a guy <laughs> and your wife says, and you, your wife's out to here. She's nine months along. And she says, it's time. Do you look at the clock? <laughs> no, you go, I know what that means. What this is, what, what Kairos is, is it's, it's, it's an important event. Kairos is always related to events. It's not related to physical time. So the time to deliver the child is the completion of the event. When he says, knowing the time, Kairos, now is high time to awake out of sleep because our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Guess what he's saying? This was written 2,000 years ago. Also, when he says high time, that word, it's the Greek word is hora, and it's the word hour. He's saying, literally, knowing the time that the events that we're looking for here, the, the return of Christ, that now is the hour to wake out of sleep. In other words, don't put it off. Because our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. He's talking about the last days. He's talking about, and folks, I don't know when you got saved, I remember again that day in 1983 when I did, and I know that my salvation is nearer than when I first believed. I also believe that it's imminent. I believe that we are bumping up against the end of the age, and it'll no longer be the last days at that point. It'll be the end times. Difference between understanding the two. But essentially what he's saying is, wake up. Now is not the time to be living life on your own terms. It's exactly what he's saying. When Jesus presented himself to Israel at his first coming, the people were asleep. And he told them they were asleep. This great comfort that comes from understanding the reality that our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Because something that I've shared with many people over the years is the fact that when our lives are in a vice, when we're going through significant trials, and I, I know some of you are, you got to realize it won't always be like this. 
God has this. Praise God. Hebrews chapter 10, uh, verses 24 and 25, the writer says this. He says, let us consider. He says, think about this. One another in order to stir up love and good works. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Question. Can you see the day approaching? Be awake. Be plugged in. Be connected to the head. Live lovingly. Love responsibly. Verse 12. He says, The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. There's some wonderful imagery here. Metaphorically, he's speaking of, it's like putting off a set of clothes and taking on a new set. He's saying, let's, let's put off this, this, the works of darkness. Let's put on the armor of light. I mean, catch the visual on that. In John chapter 9, verses 4 and 5, Jesus told his disciples, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no man can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. What Paul is reflecting here in Romans 13 is what Jesus said there. And I mentioned earlier that I truly believe that while God doesn't endorse sin, that's why he sent his son, he does redeem people out of darkness into the light to go and live in the darkness. He knows that. He knows it's tough out there, folks. He knows that it's a brutal world. That's why Jesus said, they're going to hate you. They'll think when they kill you that they're doing a service to God. Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. But that's true. That's what he says. So what is our response? Folks, it is hard to love people sometimes. We don't have the capacity in and of ourselves. That's why we must rely on the power of the Holy Spirit working within to do it. And I have to remind myself to not be surprised that this world's going crazy. Because Jesus said that it would. He also said that men don't like the light. They like darkness because their deeds are evil. And he told his disciples, he said, I send you out of sheep among wolves. All of these passages come to bear as we consider what the Apostle Paul is saying here about living in a dark world, about living in a political and social atmosphere that is messed up. Because it was in his day, we can expect nothing less in our day because the world is still falling. It's still fallen and it is still in the hands of the evil one. Won't be forever. In James 1.27, we're told to keep ourselves unstained by the world. The Apostle Paul here exhorts strongly, cast off the works of darkness. He's writing to a church. You've got to remember that he's not talking to a bunch of heathen. He's talking to people at church. He's talking to people that are believers. He's saying, look, don't get involved in that stuff. Cast it off. If it's in your life, get rid of it. Put on the armor of light. Be protected. You're exposed when you're walking in darkness. You are not exposed when you're walking in armor. 
if we don't? It's the essence of hypocrisy. Folks, people that want to live with one foot in the kingdom and one foot in the world, at the very least, severely backslidden, very good possibility they don't know the Lord. If you want to live in darkness and yet name the name of Christ, you really don't have a legitimate right to name the name of Christ. It's a difficult statement, but it's one that must be stated clearly and from God's word. If someone is claiming to be a Christian, walking unrepentant, deeds of darkness, it's a dangerous, dangerous place. And they're living a lie. It's blatant hypocrisy. And again, I'm not talking about the person who has struggles. I'm not talking about the person who's in process. I'm talking about somebody that says, you know what? Yeah, I see what that says, but I'm different. I can go and have my sin. God told me it's okay to live with my girlfriend. God told me it's, and I have heard it all over nearly 40 years, walking with the Lord. The times where I have the very uh, spiritual response, Please. You're not fooling me. You're certainly not fooling God. I want to caution you also uh, from God's word. Jesus says, look, there are sheep and there are goats. There is wheat and there is weeds. And you don't have the ability to look into somebody's heart. So you need to be really careful how you interact with that person. That might be showing some weediness. (laughs) You need to be careful how you interact with that person who might look like a goat because it might be a sheep. Yeah, that's true. It's also fair to say that a person that's living that way is in grave danger. There's nothing wrong with expressing prayerful, genuine concern. He's not saying completely stay away. He's saying that might be an entrance into a conversation that you can have with them about fully giving their life to Jesus. He goes on in verse 13 and gives three examples of what the works of darkness he's referring to in verse 12 look like. Verse 13, he says, let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness. Remember, he, again, he's writing to a church. Scandalous. He says, let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy. Do you get the impression that the apostle knows the human heart outside of Christ? We all wrestle with stuff, guys. Am I yielded? It's a good question. But I want you to notice the emphasis he puts on our practical Christian walk. Since we're children of the day, we should walk in integrity, which is the opposite of hypocrisy. 
You know, the, the, the thing I have on the slide with the, the theatrical faces, one's smiling, one's frowning, that's where the word, the from ancient Greek theater, where hypocrisy comes from. And it's, it's essentially, I mentioned this not long ago, it's, a, it's a, essentially the person who is two-faced, who is double-minded. So he uses these three sets of words to describe the darkness life. The first, revelry and drunkenness. These are interesting. Revelry, that, what that means is carousing. This is a, a guy's, hey man, let's party. <laughs> Oh, I hate parts of my 20s. Um, <laughs> revelry. It, 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 this is, it, it, the NIV renders this word orgies. Very common in Greek culture and in Roman culture for them to integrate a lot of sexual deviant, sexually deviant activity with their culture. When he says drunkenness here, I think that this is an interesting Greek word. The word is methe. Yeah. Essentially what it means, he's talking about abusing substances which conquer the will. Drunkenness, yeah, that qualifies. So does meth and methe. Things that, that lower our natural inhibitions. It's, it's that attitude of do what you want to do because now you're drunk. Or you're loaded, or you're high, or you're tweaking, or whatever. So when he says revelry and drunkenness, he's talking about that party atmosphere, that party mindset. You know, come on, gang, let's go. And he's also talking about the mindset of, you know what, I like the way I feel when I lose my inhibitions. I like the way I feel when I'm under the influence. Dangerous. I taught my kids <laughs> when they uh, they turned like 14. And each time, and they were a couple of years apart, and I'd take them for a drive. I've shared this before, but I'll share it again because it's just a relevant thing. I'd take them for a drive on a Saturday morning, and I'd tell my daughter, she was older, at first I told her, I said, honey, I want to talk to you about drugs. And she looks at me with her big brown eyes. And then she kind of rolls her eyes and says, okay, yeah, whatever, Dad. They're teaching us about that in school. I said, I know they're teaching you about that in school, but nobody's telling the truth. And she said, what? I said, nobody's telling the truth. It was back in the 90s when it was just say no. Remember that? Just say no. Like anybody at a party, you know, somebody, yeah, the, the plate comes by or the bong or whatever, and they look at it and they go, I saw a commercial on television. No, <laughs> that's not going to work. I said, but let me tell you about drugs. They're fun. And she looked at me like, what, are you out of your mind? She said, are you telling me, Dad, that I should like start getting involved with drugs? And I said, no. What I'm telling you is nobody's telling the truth. Nobody gets addicted to drugs because they're having a tough time. They're enjoying themselves. But that's the hook. That's the hook. You get on board with that and you will probably have fun. For a while. And then you'll get up one morning after you've lost 40 pounds or whatever the drug is. And you'll look and you'll realize you no longer have it. It has you. And you're enslaved. And now you don't know how you're going to get out of being enslaved. 
That's what happens with methe, folks. That's what happens when we allow things that conquer our will to come into our lives. Steer clear. The next thing he goes into is lewdness and lust. Now, lewdness, essentially, that a good word for us is wickedness. This is somebody who's obscene. This is the, the guy or the woman who everything brings a sexual overtone. Everything you know, turns into a lewd joke. Ha, 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 ha. It's not funny. It's not acting and living in love. It's not loving responsibly. It's not even love. And he talks about lust. If you don't know what that is, I'll describe it for you. It's that thing that catches your eye. And you feel yourself, you feel that thing drawing up inside of you. It's like, I want that. Oh, I'd love to experience it. It's that pull. And that pull on the human soul that lust brings is unmistakable when you get to the point where you are wanting to identify it. It's important to remember that's not sin. Sin comes about when we act on that lust. Remember, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world, and you don't have to act on it. The loving thing to do is not. The third thing he talks about here is strife and envy. Strife is conflict. It's it's the result of, of rivalry or discord among people. That's what happens when people don't get along. Strife. Envy has been described as zeal for self, for the self. It's a particularly strong feeling of resentment or jealousy against someone. I've heard it say that jealousy is, you've got one, I want one. Envy is, you've got one, I want yours. It's a strong thing. And I'll tell you what. It's a deed of the flesh, right out of Galatians chapter 5. He says, don't live this way. All of these things he's saying to Christians, don't live this way. Why? Because it's contrary to love. It's contrary to living lovingly and loving responsibly. And if you do, blatant hypocrisy. Very dangerous place. Verse 14, we'll wrap up here. He says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no, he doesn't say make some provision, make a little provision. He says, make no provision for the flesh. How do you make no provision for the flesh? He tells us here, put on Jesus, put on the Lord, put on the Holy Spirit in your life. And if you're walking in the spirit, we're told, remember, we looked at that in Romans 8. He says, if you're walking in the spirit, you're not going to fulfill the desires or the lusts of the flesh. Those two don't coexist. So you're either dominated by one and conquered by the other, or you're dominated by the other. And those lusts are in subjection. So he says, don't make any provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. So Paul echoes and amplifies here in Romans what he tells the church at Ephesus in chapter 4 of Ephesians. Also what he tells the church at Colossae in chapter 3 of Colossians, where he admonishes the church to put off the old man, that old life, that lower nature, and put on the new man, clothed with the righteousness of Christ, justified, sanctified, spirit-filled, 
I'm going to close with looking at five dangers of unchecked hypocrisy. Again, I'm stressing, this is not the process that we're engaged in where we have areas that don't line up that God is working and he is causing them to line up. This is a person that says, I'm going to live both ways. Unchecked hypocrisy. Unchecked hypocrisy leads to living a double life. Like I said, uh, we in Western culture have become really good at living compartmentalized lives. And that's not to be so. As, as, as Paul says in other places, don't let that be named among you. Don't fall into living a double life because you don't want to deal with your sin. Deal with your sin. I guarantee you that God will, the minute, the minute that you have faith enough to say, you know what, I don't know how I can get out of this, but the minute you move in that direction, he will enable you to get out of this. It's the man with the withered hand, folks. When Jesus walked up to a guy who his hand had been withered from birth, and he tells this guy, he says, stretch out your hand. Now, if I was that guy, and this had been like this from the time I was born, my response initially would probably be something like, yeah, right. But it says in the text that the minute that he began to stretch out his hand, the minute his will aligned with God's will, his hand was made whole. You got to understand the principle in that you step out in faith, he will give you the victory. Very, very clear from God's word. If you stay stuck, you're going to live a double life. And there may be people in this room who are addicted to pornography or, or watching online or who are entertaining an illicit relationship or, 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 or. Stop it. Stop living a double life. Get your life right with Christ. You'll be blessed if you do. The second thing is unchecked hypocrisy leads to living in fear. Remember that bumper sticker that said, it, it said, no God, no fear. I think it said, no God, no peace. And then there's another one that said, no God, no fear. It said, N-O, God, K-N-O-W, fear. And then it said, K-N-O-W, God, and then N-O, fear. I'll tell you what, folks, if you want to not live in fear, let your life align with the will of God in your life. You don't have to be afraid of him. My heart hurts when I hear people say, thinking that, that because they're living, that the base motivation is fear. No, that's a result of living hypocritically. The base motivation no longer is love because now it's fear. I know I'm out of God's will at some level. I just don't want to deal with it. It leads to living in fear. Unchecked hypocrisy will be a stumbling block to others. Jesus says, let your light so shine before men to glorify God uh, in heaven. And, and, and in doing that, he says, you don't light a, a lamp and put it under a bushel. As people understand that we all have struggles, that's one thing. As they understand that you're living a lie, that's a stumbling block to other Christians. It is something that can cause them to spin. Straight up, it's on you. Don't do it. Unchecked, unchecked hypocrisy 
is obviously living contrary to the gospel. That's Paul's whole point in this, that love be without hypocrisy. Lastly, unchecked hypocrisy dishonors and mocks God. In the book of Galatians, Paul says, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. That which a man sows, he will also reap. The solution to these folks is simple. As the, God, as the conviction of God's spirit comes, and it does, unless your heart is hard and your conscience is seared and you can't hear from God, you hear from God on these things. We do, I do. And if I confess my sins, he's faithful and just to forgive me for my sins and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. That word confess means to agree with. If you're living your life out of harmony with God, if you're living your life out of harmony with the spirit of God dwelling within, and his ministry is that of trying to head you off at the past rather than empowering your life, get back to letting him empower your life. Turn from that sin, turn from that activity, turn from whatever that thing is that he may put his finger on in your life. Get out of the hypocrisy. It's dangerous. It's dangerous. And God has better plans for you. He has better plans for me. Let's pray. Father, hard-hitting message. And yet, Lord, we have to be faithful to your word. We have to be faithful to seeing you work in our hearts and our lives. And Lord, I know I speak for my brothers and sisters in this room. I don't want to be here to play church. I want to be here to learn of you, to be conformed to the image of Christ. And I know that that's the case. So I pray, Father, perform your conforming work in each of us. Pour out your love in us, that we would pour it out to others. Let our lives be marked by love, Lord, not by criticism or condemnation or any of those other things that the world piles on, but that we would simply learn to live more lovingly and to love more responsibly. It's our desire, Lord. We know that it it, it lines up with your revealed will. So I pray you would do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord.